0: Hi everyone, I'm your host NG and welcome to the 39th episode of the podcast Sounds About Right? Audiobooks to help us understand the world. On this episode I was joined by Bruce McIver, author of the book Standoff Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. Faced with a constant stream of news reports of standoffs and confrontations Canada's Reconciliation Project has obviously gone off the rails. In this series of concise and thoughtful essays Lawyer and historian Bruce McIver explains why reconciliation with indigenous people is failing and what needs to be done to fix it. His essays in the book are honest and heartfelt and in clear plain English he explains the historical and social forces that underpin the development of aboriginal law, criticises its shortcomings and charts a practical principled way forward. It was great discussing the book with Bruce. Hope you enjoyed the episode. So you're a lawyer by trade. However, the subject matter of this book, if it's fair for me to say, is something which matters deeply to you on a personal level. So how did you find the process of putting this book together?
1: That's a good question. Standoff, I think, parts of the books where it's really a lawyer speaking about the law and trying to make it as accessible as possible. That part is pretty much in my wheelhouse in most lawyers. The parts where I get into my own personal family stories and my own personal experiences doing this work, that's a lot more difficult. It's difficult to write those pieces. It's hard work, but I think what I've learned from my clients across the country is that you have to do that hard work to meaningfully engage in this work. So I kept that in the back of my mind all the time. This isn't typical lawyer type of writing. I know I got in trouble with my mom a few times when she read a few of those pieces. (laughs) She was, you know, you're not supposed to be talking about that kind of stuff. But we do have to have those conversations. And to have those conversations, you do have to get into a place personally. Sometimes that's uncomfortable, but that's part of the hard, important work. And
0: so, Bruce, I want to touch on what you mentioned in one of the earlier chapters of the book, if not the first chapter, actually, and that is the doctrine of discovery. What is this and why is it important?
1: Right. It's at the foundations of how indigenous people across the Americas, North America, South America, Central America, have been displaced from their lands it's a doctrine that began with the Catholic Church and the papal bulls of the late 15th century, basically dividing up the so called New World between European countries. And it's based on this racist principle that if so called civilized nations from Europe show up on indigenous lands, they have the right to acquire an interest in those lands and usurp, displace Indigenous sovereignty over those lands. So it began in that way. It's based on the idea that Indigenous people of the so-called Americas were not civilized and so did not have a right to their lands. And then it became the informative view of the world that the U.S. Supreme Court adopted in the 1820s and th- 30s trying to explain how did the colonizing countries gain an interest in indigenous lands and so that's where the formal legal doctrine comes from it began with the US supreme court informed by that long history of colonization supported by the catholic church
0: and even Canadian private property rights are based on the doctrine of discovery, aren't they?
1: This is what I explain and stand off and talk about making people feel uncomfortable when I have these conversations with non-Indigenous people in Canada. One of the things that I like to do is I like to wait till they get their property assessments. And a lot of them, particularly if you live like I do in Vancouver. Property values are going up all the time, and I point out to them, you realize that that's based on a fundamental lie, right? Like whoever authorized, gave the government the right to ensure that you have an interest in that property, it's all based on this fundamental lie that colonizers can just show up and acquire an interest in the land, And that's been the reality and those interests in lands have been given out by colonizing governments and then individuals buy and sell. And over the years, the value has increased exponentially, but the fundamental lie is still, how did that occur in the first place? And how did the governments manage to ignore the Indigenous interest in the land.
0: There is now a duty to consult and accommodate Indigenous people. And on the surface, this sounds great. However, what is the issue with this, Bruce?
1: Yeah, it's a complicated area of law, and I try to explain it as best as possible, but it's based on this fundamental lie to start with, that the courts have tried to find a way to, without upsetting the apple cart too much and without necessarily dealing with the fundamental problem what the courts in Canada have said while well, while this question of how non-indigenous people how the government got an interest in the land is an outstanding one and it's not been resolved we will ensure that in the interim there's an obligation to consult with indigenous people about their lands and this has been in Canadian law now for quite a while it has had some positive effects but at the end of the day, it's not a substantive right to anything. It's not a recognition of Indigenous authority over the land, and fundamentally, it maintains all decision-making powers in the hands of the colonizing governments. They're making the decision. All they're doing is consulting with Indigenous people before they go ahead and make that decision. And Indigenous people all across the country are saying, we had enough of that. We should be making decisions ourselves over the land, not just being consulted with about a decision that someone else is going to make.
0: Absolutely. And I got the impression from your book that the issue with the duty to consult is that it consists of too much talking and deliberation and not enough action in favor of the indigenous people.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting situation because while we've been and our clients have been able to, in certain situations, get certain positive outcomes, at the end of the day what the courts have said is, well, this is a procedural right, which means if the governments tick the boxes and do all the things that they're supposed to do, they don't necessarily have to do anything substantive to address the underlying issues. So over the years, and it's a bit ironic because it's been Indigenous people in Canada that have brought these cases to the courts, the courts have expounded more and more on what's required. And the more they do, the more of a box Indigenous people find themselves in. So my advice to my clients across the country is if you're still doing that, you kind of already lost, you got to move to a different requirement. And that's requiring governments coming and getting consent from you and recognizing your decision making authority, not just consulting about a decision that they intend to make.
0: And in the book, you speak about specific cases, what the court said, and why it matters. Why did you choose to write the book in this format, Bruce?
1: Yeah, a big part of the work I do in my firm, First People's Law, the big part of the work we do is engage in that public conversation. I've been an advocate of this for a long time. I think going to court is important, and you can have certain successes there on behalf of your clients. But real fundamental long-term change requires a change in attitudes. It requires non-Indigenous people particularly to better understand what these issues are so that they're demanding more of their politicians. So I tried the best I could to make this clear and simple and direct. You'll have seen that the book, it's about 40 essays, but each one is only 800, a 1,000 words. They're not very long. I joke all the time that I don't want to overstay my welcome on any particular topic, but it forces you to get right to the point. And I've always been a believer the law is not that complicated. Lawyers might try to make it complicated, but non lawyers are smart. They can figure this out. It's on us to explain it as clearly as possible.
0: touch on Daniel's decision and its importance because I feel as though that was a very important part in the book in understanding standoff would you mind touching on that Bruce?
1: Yeah so this is a thing that people outside of Canada sometimes it takes them a while to get their mind around is that in Canada protected under the Canadian constitution are not just indigenous rights but they identify different categories of indigenous people so there are what in Canada we might call First Nations, the Inuit, also the Métis. And the Métis are a result of ethnogenesis. So the Métis didn't pre-exist colonization. The Métis in Canada are one of the outcomes of colonization. So it's indigenous people intermarrying with non-indigenous people, but creating a separate identifiable nation of their own. And so those in Canada are the Métis. That's part of my ancestry. I'm one of the current-day Métis. So it's an interesting example, and I use my personal history to try to bring it home to people how the law works to liberate and oppress Indigenous people at the same time because you look to the development of the law to support you to say yes you know what i've been wronged my ancestors were wrong that's how i became a lawyer in a roundabout way my metis ancestors were denied the land they were promised and we had to move into some really unproductive lands where there was mainly swamps and rocks and I picked a lot of rocks when I was a kid, and one day I realized there was no end to these rocks. I needed to find something else to do, and that's how I became, ultimately, I became a lawyer. There's times where I think, oh, maybe I'd be better off picking rocks, but this is where I am. So the law helps in that way, but it also, it's colonizers' laws defining you. It's not indigenous laws. These aren't Métis laws. These are non-Indigenous judges, in the most part, looking at you through a colonizer lens and deciding who you are, that's very difficult for Indigenous people, not just in Canada, but around the world. So in standoff, I give the example of how that law has developed and use my own personal history.
0: There's two things I actually wanted to ask you off the back of that. The first is... I remember you mentioned a story in Standoff about before you went to university, I believe, and you was happy to take the place as long as you knew you wasn't taking the place of someone else who identified as Métis. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it was one of those things because for a lot of the Métis in Canada, just that connection to your ancestry, part of colonization is disrupting that. And that's not just the example for my family, but for a lot of Indigenous people all across the country and for First Nations people, much more drastic with the horrible history of residential schools in Canada, the forced adoptions of Indigenous people. It's a real tragic, not just history, but an ongoing fact of what Canada is. So myself... I use my own personal history. It wasn't really something we talked about when we were young. And it's not that many generations back, but like a lot of Métis people, you wanted to fit in to the so-called white society. So you didn't want to have that as part of your history. And so when it came to go to university, yeah, that's who I am. But at that time, it wasn't at the forefront of my identity. A good example there was just working with and being part of an Indigenous law student group at the University of BC, and they were all women, except me, and these wonderful Indigenous women that were so welcoming and supportive. I'm sure it's an experience that a lot of people have had, that community support really gives you the confidence to step up and speak with a voice that has been oppressed, not just you personally, but for generations of Indigenous people.
0: And so what I wanted to ask is, if you had to make that decision now, would you have deliberated as much as you did back then in terms of accepting the place? Or would you be like, no, this is who I am? So you'd feel a lot more comfortable with deciding to take that position?
1: Right. I think I'd go through the same process because it's really important. Indigenous people aren't all the same, and I'm not visibly Indigenous. And so my life experience, my lived experience is just qualitatively different from so many of my friends, family members, clients who are visibly Indigenous. The racism that they've experienced, the intergenerational trauma... It's not some part of my lived experience and so it's really important to be aware of that at the same time that as i write about in the book i have responsibilities to my metis ancestors i can't disown them i have responsibility to my children for the future because if you allow yourself to be silenced the colonizers win they win. You don't exist anymore. So you have to keep that in mind, I think. But at the same time, you have to recognise I have had a lot of advantages because I don't look Indigenous. I look like any other white male walking around. And so I think it's really important to balance those two sides of who you are. Mm.
0: So Bruce, what is the complex relationship between Canadian law and Indigenous identity? I know it's a big question, isn't it? But if you're able to answer
1: that... I put myself out there to try to answer these things. My The book that I'm working on now is called Indigenous Rights in One Minute. So I'm trying to answer a lot of these types of questions in short and succinct as possible. So the issue... Here, I think, is that so much of Indigenous identity in Canada has developed around and been circumscribed by the development of colonizer's laws. So whether it's First Nation people, and it's complicated in Canada, they register in Canada as part of a federal piece of legislation. So you become a status in 10. Defined by the federal government, or whether it's Métis people, like I say, that are defined through the courts. So you have that overlaid on top, and then what you have is Indigenous people themselves trying to define themselves through their own laws, through their own traditions. And so this is really part of the process at play now in Canada is that Indigenous people are coming back. I was just working today with a client, developing their own citizenship law. Not about the colonizers, how they develop it at all, just how would they use their own traditions? How did they figure out for themselves who was part of their nation? So that's exciting work. It's really empowering work, but it's going to take a long time to make that transition.
0: So the last thing I want to ask you, Bruce, is other than reading this book, what would you encourage one to do if they wanted to be more informed on this matter?
1: Yeah, there are a lot of fantastic podcasts out there done by Indigenous people. There's so much wonderful work that's been done. We have a resource list on our website. You just need to go to firstpeopleslaw.com. And we have a whole resource list with readings, podcasts, all types of wonderful work that's largely been done by Indigenous people in Canada. And it's not just informative, but it's really encouraging. Regardless of who you are, I think you can't help but feel optimistic. When you hear Indigenous people talking about the steps that they're taking to ensure that Indigenous rights in Canada are recognised, I've been doing this work for quite a while. And if I ever need uh, pick me up, that's where I go. I go back to Indigenous people themselves.
0: Fantastic. Thank you, Bruce.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on. And just for the audio book, I want to give a shout out to Lauren Cardinal, who was kind enough to do the reading of it. Thankfully, people listening to the book don't have to listen to me. Lauren's voice is fantastic, and I really am grateful that he read and recorded the book. Thank you.
0: That was Bruce McIver, author of the book, Standoff, Why Reconciliation Fails Indigenous People and How to Fix It. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Bruce for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.